Hi, I'm Shannon, pastor at Sturgeon Bay Community Church. I want to thank you for joining us during our study of the book of Mark, where the theme is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. The whole point of studying this book is so that you can find out more about what the Bible has to say about the person and the work and the message of Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to grab a cup of coffee and a notebook, and let's dive into the book of Mark. And I hope that you could join us sometime soon for a live service where ministry happens in relationships and you can get connected to other brothers and sisters in the faith. See you soon. Here we go. Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. For those of you who are taking notes, uh, like Pastor Shannon's been doing, just wanted to give you a heads up. The three things that we're really going to be looking at and talking about today and... Um, the good, we want to be good stewards of great teaching. We want to pursue the kingdom of God, thy kingdom come. And then to be confident that the parables, we're reading them and we understand them because Jesus actually took the time to explain them a little bit to some of the disciples. So if you have your Bibles, please open them up to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verses 21 through 34. And here is what Mark writes. He says, he also said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed? Isn't it to be put on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden that will not be revealed, and nothing concealed that will not be brought to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him listen. And then he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. By the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and more will be added to you. For whoever has, more will be given to him. And whoever does not have, even what he has, will be taken away from him. The kingdom of God is like this, he said. A man scatters seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows, although he doesn't know how. The soil produces a crop by itself. First the blade, then the head, and then the full grain on the head. As soon as the crop is ready, he sends for the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable can we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed that when sown upon the soil is the smallest of all the seeds on the ground. And when sown, it comes up and grows taller than all the garden plants and produces large branches so that the birds of the sky can nest in its shade. He was speaking the word to them with many parables like these as they were able to understand. He did not speak to them without a parable. Privately, however, he explained everything to his own disciples. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it has poured out upon us so richly. And thank you that we can be certain that this is the truth. These are the words that our Savior Jesus spoke. These are the thoughts that he desires for us to know. And so today, may we take what was recorded here in the Gospel of Mark through the testimony of Peter and know that this is the truth taught by our Savior Jesus. Thank you for this light. Thank you for this seed. Thank you for this promise. May we learn and grow in this time together. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. So for those of you who were, you know, wondering what the theme of the Gospel of Mark was, because I know we've never heard it in these last, this is week 11, so in these last 11 or 12 weeks, we have not heard at all what the theme of the Gospel of Mark is. So here it is, just, just to, you know, first time for many of you, I'm sure. 
Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Son of God. And the expectations for Messiah, of course, were that Messiah was going to come riding in on a white horse. He was going to redeem the people of Israel. He was going to rescue them from uh, being slaves and held captive and oppressed. And he was going to make the kingdom of God come to pass right there in Jerusalem one day. All of a sudden, just kingdom of God right there. And so when Jesus comes and claims to be the Messiah and then starts to teach on the kingdom of God, we see him actually starting to take expectations and turn them on their head and flip-flop them and make them completely confounded because he was not here to establish an earthly kingdom, but he was here to establish the kingdom of God. And Jesus actually said a number of times that the kingdom of God had come with his presence. And so as we look here uh, again at Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 25, just a reminder of what it says here. Jesus begins to talk about a lamp. A lamp. How many of you guys uh, have ever used an oil lamp? Aren't they cool? I mean, I love oil lamps. Uh, you know, when you're feeling like old-timey and you just want to, you know, like relax, you turn off the TV. It's not funny, Beth. Uh, you turn off the TV and you light your lamp, or maybe I'm just the only one who does this. Light your lamp and you read by lamplight. It's just like, this is cool. Some of you, if you grew up with that, I'm so sorry. It probably isn't as cool for you. You know, for me, it's this beautiful thing of trying to reconnect with, um, with history. And, and when Jesus talks of a lamp, he's talking about a clay pot or a clay vessel that would have been as simple as this, maybe just pinched on one end that would hold a wick up and it was filled with oil. And lamps would have been used to light homes in the evenings. And, um, you know, the thing is, though, is when you're living in an agrarian society or you're living in a society without electricity, you tend to to conserve these kinds of things. You don't light lamps for no reason. Um, I'm the guy at my house. I walk around and I turn off lights. That's my job. Anybody else have that job at your house? Yes. Every house needs at least one person that walks around and does nothing but turn off lights. Especially once there are children or in the home, you understand that all of a sudden lights just miraculously pop on. Just all over the place. The same way, you know, what, what does it cost us? Pennies to keep a room lit, and yet we're walking around and turning off lights. Well, the same thing with an oil lamp. You would not have lit an oil lamp for no reason. To light an oil lamp is a deliberate choice to bring light into a room, to bring light and life into a darkened area. And it's not something you just light and then turn on or cover up. I mean, how foolish is that? You and I, we want to turn off lights. Well, maybe not all of us, but some of us, all of you who raised your hands, you know the struggle. You want to turn off lights. You want to save those pennies. You want to make sure electricity is not being wasted. You want to be a good steward. Well, the same thing is, is here in a Jewish household. They would not have lit a lamp just for nothing. And Jesus is telling us and telling this, this culture, telling his disciples, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed? Isn't it to be put on a lampstand? He's stating the obvious. It's You don't light a lamp, a precious commodity like oil, and waste it just to put it under a basket or hide it under a bed. And so he is expressing to them the foolishness of having light and hiding it. When we have light, don't we put it on a lampstand? 
Don't we want to light up the whole room? I mean, we all know how painful darkness can be. I mean, when we're talking metaphorically, we all understand that, that sin and darkness, that they line up. They're equals. We, when we're talking about darkness in spiritual things, we're talking about sin. We're talking about being lost. But even in practical things, we all know the importance of light. I mean, you go to someone else's house, and you wake up in the middle of the night and need to use the restroom. Anybody but me, you brother, anybody but me ever run into things in the dark because you didn't want to turn on lights and disturb everyone? There was one night I got up to get a bottle for our oldest 20 years ago. Wow. Anyway, um, got up to get a bottle for our oldest. I didn't turn on the lights because I didn't want to disturb anybody else in the house. Went up to the kitchen, got the bottle ready with the, the you know hot water. and I mean, I knew what I was doing. Don't worry, we didn't kill him or anything. Clearly, because he's still alive. And I came running down the stairs and turned the corner in a dark hallway and ran right into the door jam. I mean, this is a place I had lived for two years. Came down the stairs, turned the corner, right into the door jam. Of course, I cried like a baby, a small child who needed a bottle and woke up everyone in the house. The importance of light, though, strikes us in those moments, doesn't it? The importance of light when we stub our toe on a coffee table trying to walk through a darkened room. The importance of light when we run into the door that we didn't see was closed. <laughs> I do that too. We, anyway, too many personal stories. I'll go crazy. The, the deal is that we all understand the importance of light. And Jesus is telling us, he's reminding us when light comes into your life, you don't just hide it. You don't just steward it poorly. Instead, you understand that everything that is hidden needs to be revealed. And everything that is concealed needs to be brought to light. When you bring a lamp into a room, it's not just for decoration. It's so that you can see. It's so that the hidden things are brought out. The concealed things are brought to light. Does that make sense? I mean, all of a sudden we see this verse, it's like, oh, he's not speaking in some sort of crazy, like, double speak that we'll never understand because it's so deep and spiritual. It's very clear. He's saying to us, what kind of fool lights a lamp and hides it? Because everybody knows we light lamps so we can see everything in the room. That's why we light lamps. And then Jesus moves on and says this, and it doesn't seem to line up, but we'll get there and understand how it does, right? If anyone has ears to hear, let him listen. Now, there's actually two things in this statement. Uh, if anyone has ears to hear, first of all, we'll do a quick test. Everyone do the ear test, right? Okay, so you have them. Now, if you have ears to hear, it's time to listen, Jesus says. Now, we all know the difference between hearing and listening, don't we? we? Especially if you've been a parent, you understand. Your children will oftentimes hear you. You've been a child. You remember. You hear what your parents say, but were you listening? Were you actually paying attention to the point where you can apply what you've heard? Right? I mean, we all hear when someone calls our name, and then they start to talk. But do we actually listen to what they're saying? This happens in my house 
all the time. And I'm actually pretty notorious for it. I'll be reading a book or I'll be thinking about something and my son, William, he'll say, hey, dad. And then he just starts talking. He just, I mean, he goes for it. And like three sentences in, I'm like, wait, 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 wait. I wasn't listening. Would you please start again? Because I want to know what you have to say, son. I want to listen. We all now can understand the difference between hearing and listening. And Jesus is stating something obvious. Everyone who has ears to hear, anyone who has ears to hear, we all have the ears to hear. He says, now make the choice to listen. Make the choice to listen. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. By the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and more will be added to you. For whoever has, more will be given to him. And whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Now this little passage, uh, for whoever has, uh, more will be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. You all have probably heard this used in a different context than this previously. What, what ways have you heard that little passage used? On talents. Uh, some of us, we've heard it on money, the concept of giving, if we give and give. But Jesus isn't talking about necessarily talents or giving. He's actually talking about the light of the gospel here. He's talking about the good news that he is bringing. So we go back and we look at the lamp. And, and who lights a lamp to hide it? No one. We all know what light is for. Light is to reveal. Light is to, to bring life. Light is to make things happen. But some of us were busy hiding the light, the revelation, the good news that Jesus has given to us. And then he says, hey, listen up. If you take good care of what you have been given in this gospel, in other words, you listen and you apply and you follow and you do, then more will be given to you, however you measure it out. In other words, if you measure out your life in dedication to Jesus Christ in teaspoonfuls, the blessing you receive from living the Christian life comes back in teaspoonfuls. When you measure out the, your Christian life in gallons, the blessings that pour back into you are measured in gallons. The Apostle Paul called himself a drink offering in the book of Philippians. Anybody know what a drink offering was? In the Old Testament, we'd bring wine. The, the, the Jews would bring wine, and, and they'd bring fine things to the altar, and they would pour some on the altar. But how much did they pour on the altar, do you think? They, they pour just a tiny little bit. Anybody know? Anybody familiar with a drink offering? So, so sometimes we think, well, maybe, you know, maybe just a little bit. You know, like, hey, it's, it's the best stuff. God enjoys just a sip, right? Hey, good for God. In the Old Testament, a drink offering, do you know what they did? They took it and they turned it upside down. And they poured. And they poured. And they poured. And every last drop was given for God. Every last bit of that measure was poured out to the glory of God. Jesus says in similar ways, when you... What you give, what you pour out, what you dedicate to your Christian life is what you will receive from your Christian walk. 
a lot of us, we're holding back, aren't we? We're, we're lighting the light and then hiding it. <laughs> we're, we're not being good stewards of this great news that God has given to us. And you know what? It's not just you. It's me. It's hard sometimes to be just all out, gallon at a time believers who shine your light in everything, isn't it? But we have the promise that when we do, we will be blessed. But then we also have this promise. For whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Jesus is talking once again and still about the gospel, about our spiritual life. And when we do not live it wholeheartedly or we reject Christ, the truth of the matter is that when we get to the end of life, especially even that opportunity to trust Christ is taken away from us. When, when, when we reject the good news of the gospel, when we put out the lamp or fail to ever have it lit in our life, when we turn away from it, even the very opportunity to receive Jesus at one point is going to be taken away. Which is why it is so important for those of us who have ears to hear and listen to what Jesus is saying to us. To really surrender, to really give over to the light, to really pour ourselves out, to really measure everything that we are to his glory. That we might receive life and life abundant. Now, Jesus isn't talking here about big cars. He's not talking about spiffy houses. He's not talking about lots of money. He's not talking about perfect marriages or perfect families. He is talking, though, about being blessed. And, you know, sometimes those things go with being blessed, and sometimes being blessed is in spite of the lack of all of those things. And we can know that when we wholeheartedly carry the light, when we put it on a lampstand, when we wholeheartedly measure out our whole life to the glory of God, he'll pour back into us in spite of the circumstances around us. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. He says to us, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, this doesn't mean that we have to work for salvation. We don't have to do the right things to please God that we might in hope be saved. You know what religion that is? All the others. <laughs> we don't have to pray, oh, you know, I did everything right, so maybe God have mercy on me when I die. No. We can know that when we trust Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are saved. It's by grace you're saved, through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. It is the free gift of God. But working out our salvation is about applying it in everyday life. It's about moving it from the mind, which we're all really good at. We're all really good at memorizing things. We're all really good at knowing things, especially in today's day and age. Your greatest Bible study help is probably Google. You know? I mean, anybody? Okay, maybe it's just me. We have all of this information right in front of us. It is so easy to be full of information and empty of God's Spirit. And so this working at our salvation, 
with fear and trembling is about taking what we know, taking the light we have, taking the measure in our life and measuring it out in abundance and doing something with it and applying it to who we are. We can know how we should live, and if we don't do it, that's foolishness. And it's a faith not walked out, and it's light put under the bed. We can know how we're supposed to do business. We can know how we're supposed to love our family. We can know how we're supposed to serve God. And if we don't work it out and do it in everyday life, we're hiding the light. We're measuring out in teaspoons instead of gallons. But we also know that when we give fully of ourselves to God, it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. You see the beauty of this? He's, Paul here is saying the exact same thing that Jesus has just said to us. You be a good steward of what's been given to you spiritually. Don't hide the light. Listen up. What you pour out into your faith is what God will then be able to and, and release back into you. You will grow. If you feel stale and dead... If you feel like, where are you, God? If you feel like he's not present, is it because you've never invited him into that aspect of your life? You've not turned that over to him? You've not begun to work out your salvation with fear and trembling in that area? What oftentimes happens is we sit back and say, God, why haven't you? And God says, I'm just waiting for you. Put your light on the lampstand. I'm waiting for you to measure it out in greater measure, and I will return it to you. Not so that you will be saved, but because you are saved. Do this. Grow. Experience blessing. Back in chapter 4 of Mark, verses 26 through 29, Jesus says this. The kingdom of God is like this. He said, a man scatters seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows, although he doesn't know how. The soil produces a crop by itself, first the blade, then the head, and then the full grain on the head. As soon as the crop is ready, he sends for the sickle because the harvest has come. Jesus says, who grows the kingdom of God? God does. We sow the seed. We, we make the opportunity, and then God does the work. God does the growing. God does the maturing. God does the processing. Just just like when we plant seed in the garden, we don't go out there and watch it and will it to be something, do we? It, I mean, if you do, you're going to get bored and you're going to get discouraged. I mean, if you've ever grown a garden, you know, it's that, especially that early stage, you, know, you, you go out and you plant the seeds and it's just like nothing today. And then you go, you know, next day it's like, Nothing to do. I mean, it takes what feels like forever to get those first seeds popping up out of the ground. And, you know, it takes another couple of weeks. But then the next thing you know, you have more zucchini than you could ever imagine. In fact, you think that God has cursed you with zucchini. It's what it feels like. What are we going to do with all this zucchini? But this amazing harvest came not because you stood there and went, zucchini. You planted the seed, and you let God do the work. 
when it was time for harvest, you walked out and you picked zucchini, and you're like, God, you've done amazing things. Please stop blessing me. But that's the same thing. It's the same thing going on here. When we understand it isn't our job to bring maturity into the lives of others or even ultimately to bring salvation into the lives of others. But to understand our job is to plant seeds and to be ready for harvest. The kingdom of God is like this. We go out, we sow seed into the lives of others. God does the work in their spirit and through them and in them. And then there's going to come a day where we get to see harvest. And they're going to turn their life over to Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 and 7, the Apostle Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. I don't know about you, but for me, this takes a lot of pressure off. I know that when I faithfully lift up my lamp, when I faithfully measure out my life in fullness, that God will do something with that, that seed will be planted in the lives of others. And I don't have to convince someone to trust Jesus. I don't have to cajole them. In fact, if it is me that convinces them, it's probably not genuine in their life. But instead, I trust God to give the growth. I want to introduce you to something called the Ingle Scale. Mr. Ingle wrote it. Not the guy with the fiddle in the little house on the prairie, but uh, it, it was a Christian thinker, and he said, here's what I see in the Christian life, is that there are actually this huge span of stages in evangelism. And it starts with something, let's call it negative. Where, you know, negative 10 is actually the lowest, but we'll, uh, this, this chart includes negative 8. And negative 8 is someone who has an awareness of supreme being, no knowledge of the gospel. And that if you walk up to someone who is a negative eight and you share the good news of Jesus Christ with them, you tell them what God has done for you. You shine your light. You measure out in fullness. You are blessed and maturing right in front of their eyes and telling them how great life can be. You likely will not move them from a negative eight all the way to a glorified saint. Instead, you might see them bump up from a negative eight to a negative seven where all of a sudden they understand the God of the Bible. And over time, other people will visit with them and they'll bump up to a negative three or a negative four, an increasing awareness of the gospel and its personal implications. And then one day, someone will have the privilege when they share, they'll cross over the threshold into salvation. They will have a moment, uh, they'll cross from, from a negative to a zero, uh, this moment of repentance and faith and new birth. But guess what? It doesn't end there, that it continues on, that every time we share and every time we disciple and every time we love and every time we live out the gospel in front of others, we will get to watch others slowly mature. One more step, one more rung of the ladder. And so the joy of this is just like scripture has said, some of us are going to have the privilege of planting seed. And we'll plant and plant and plant and plant and wonder, God, why don't you use me to harvest? But, but you get to plant a lot of seeds. And you wonder, is, is, is what I'm doing of any value for the gospel? Does this even matter? And God's going to tell you, absolutely. Plant and plant and plant. Because 
Sometimes you get to be the planter. Sometimes you get to be the one who waters. Like the Apostle Paul wrote, that he planted the seed that Apollos watered, but God brought the growth and the increase. And sometimes you get to be the person who gets to be there for the harvest. That's what we all want to be, isn't it? We want to be the guy or the lady that's there for the harvest. We want to be the one that says, have you ever considered trusting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And someone goes, yes, let's do it right now. And you're just like, yes, I am the best evangelist ever. But the truth is, is that the potential is that for years people have been planting in their life and people have been watering them. And what you got was the privilege of seeing the harvest. Some of us, we're going to plant and plant and plant and never get to see a harvest, but we should faithfully plant. Some of us, we're going to water and water and water and we'll never get to see the harvest, but we should faithfully water and plant. Some of us, we're harvesters. What a privilege. Don't think yourself better than those who planted and watered. You see, this whole process is this beautiful thing, and Jesus is telling us the kingdom of his God, it's like this. Somebody sows seed, God brings the increase through time and experience, and then one day we get called in for the harvest. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. The apostle Paul writes, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, he was speaking to believers and saying, I know that you will mature into Christ's likeness because God is faithful. But we can also know that when we plant seed and when we water, that God who begins the good work in people, he will not abandon them until they come to know him through his son, Jesus Christ. And so we can be confident that every work we do will be carried out to completion. Finally, verses 30 through 32, and actually it's not finally because i got one little chunk after this too. And he said, Jesus did, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable can we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed that when sown upon the soil is the smallest of all the seeds on the ground. And when sown, it comes up and grows taller than all the garden plants and produces large branches so that the birds of the sky can nest in its shade. So Jesus moves from lamps and measuring cups to sowing seed and harvesting, to planting mustard. Doesn't this make perfect sense? Well, it does actually. As we move through, you can begin to see it's all about stewardship of your gifts, the gift of the gospel in your life, and how that then will affect as the kingdom of God is blessed and grows, and then what the kingdom of God looks like. It starts out small, and then grows big. Now, Jesus was actually taking the expectations of his hearers and kind of turning them on the head. Because when they thought of the kingdom of God, they didn't think of a mustard tree or a mustard plant. They thought of this tree. Anybody know which one this is? It's okay if you don't. I don't know that I could have picked it out. This is actually a cedar of Lebanon. Anybody who's read your Bible, these sound familiar all of a sudden? The cedars of Lebanon. The cedars of Lebanon, these were cut down in huge numbers to build the temple under Solomon, to build Solomon's palace, to build all of the ornate um, buildings to celebrate God and to celebrate the kingdom of Israel under Solomon. And when God promised his kingdom to increase and provide life, he uses the picture of a cedar, a cedar of Lebanon in Ezekiel chapter 17, verses 22 through 24. And so in the Jewish mind, when you talked about the kingdom of God, you should be talking about 
one of these big, majestic cedars that everybody covets, that are beautiful, that bring life, that, that uh, provide all this amazing wood. You should be thinking about one of these amazing trees. And Jesus says, I want you to think about the kingdom of God, and I want you to compare it to something, a mustard seed. And of course, they're all like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We were, we were kind of thinking cedar of Lebanon, Jesus. Can we go back to that one? We really like that better. It's bigger. It's prettier. It has more. But Jesus starts talking about a mustard seed. And mustard seeds, if you've ever used mustard in your pickling or you've ground mustard for fun, I, to make mustard, I guess, um, or, or you get the brown mustard at the store that's got the crunchy bits in it, you know, that stuff, tiny little seeds. And, and these mustard seeds, they're the smallest of the garden seeds. Now, Jesus is not making an absolute statement about seeds in general because there are smaller seeds than mustard seeds. He's not saying, okay, here's the truth. This is the smallest seed ever because then people look at it and go, well, Jesus was wrong, so how could he be the son of God? No, he's talking about garden seeds. And the mustard seed is the smallest of the garden seed, the smallest of the herbs. And yet when it grows, it grows huge. Anybody ever grown mustard? Me either. <laughs> I just get it in a jar, right? But but what happens is, is especially here in, in, in Palestine, is that these mustard uh, seeds, under the right conditions, can grow to plants that uh, have been recorded to be as tall as a horse and rider together, 10, 12, even up to 15 feet tall. Now, they're still just herb plants, but they get kind of woody, and they get some branches, and they, they grow together in huge fields. Uh, this is actually a, a picture from the edge of the Sea of Galilee, uh, the bottom right-hand corner there, and, and huge fields of mustard grow wild, and, and the, the height of a man and bigger. And, and Jesus is, is talking about this, this seed that starts out as, as next to nothing and then becomes something amazing. It's unexpected. It's not what the people of Israel would have said, yeah, all right, we're mustard plants. That's not exciting. But, but it, it is exactly the picture that Jesus wants to paint, this tiny seed that grows into something large and something formidable and something that actually what's known about mustard is it's almost like a weed in the way that it spreads because it grows up and it has so many seeds and they go everywhere and it just spreads and spreads, it grows quickly, it grows large, it produces large numbers of seeds, and it influences the area in which it is introduced very quickly. And so we see all these beautiful pictures then of something that starts small and grows large in an unexpected way. Something that starts as a single seed and takes over whole areas and whole cultures and how it grows and develops. The kingdom of God, it's not just one tree. It's not just one big, beautiful thing. It is this amazing, fast-growing, started small, turns into something significant, has great influence and, and expansion possibilities. This is what the kingdom of God is. Now, some of you have maybe seen the mustard tree. The mustard tree is not what Jesus is referring to here. When we look back at the Greek, he's talking about the herb mustard. And so we want to understand what's he saying here. Well, it, things in our life, spiritual life starts small and it grows big 
when we tend it, when we give it time, when we trust God, when we are good stewards of it, it grows in ways we never imagined or or would have experienced otherwise. And then, then it begins to have this amazing influence and changes the culture around them around it. God's kingdom starts small. It ends bigger than we expected, but it doesn't always conform to our expectations. And it slowly, through us and through our influence, it grows, it develops, and it spreads. Last little bit. He was speaking the word to them with many parables like these, as they were able to understand. He did not speak to them without a parable. Privately, however, He explained everything to his own disciples. Now, I found this little verse to be really comforting in some ways because I read the parables of Jesus and some moments I go, what? What are you talking about, Jesus? But to know, to know that Jesus didn't just teach in questions and enigmas, he taught truth. And then he took the time to explain it to his closest disciples. And do you know what they did? They taught the next generation and the next generation. They wrote it down in letters to churches. And we can be confident that what Jesus has taught us is clearly understood. Because we see it explained through the writings of apostles like Paul and John and Peter. And we can know that what Jesus taught is life-changing and true, and we understand it completely because he took the time to make sure his disciples understood. And they've passed off that understanding to us down through the generations and through the remainder of the New Testament. And so I find this very comforting, this guy who's a little dense and a little slow sometimes when it comes to reading the parables. What do you mean, Jesus? That when I look into other parts of scripture and then come back to the parables, I can clearly interpret them because clear teaching that interprets the parables is contained in the teaching of the disciples who were clearly taught what the parables meant. So hopefully that's comforting for you as well, that we have a faith that is clear, it's true, it's beautiful, and we really are understanding what Jesus taught in these parables because these truths have been passed on to us through other writings and faithful stewards of the gospel all these many years. And if people have faithfully stewarded the gospel for our sake, how much more should we be excited for the opportunity to faithfully steward the gospel for the sake of those who will come behind us, for the sake of those who are following after us? Jesus um, In the Great Commission, therefore, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all the commands that I've given you. That's what he said. So we're part of this beautiful chain of making disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who made us disciples so that we can make disciples. And we have got to Take our lamp and not hide it, but tend it and use it and bring to light the hidden things in our life and bring to to the forefront the, the concealed things in the lives of others through the gospel. We must faithfully steward the light. 
that we've been given, and God will give the increase. We'll see people move up that Ingle scale from negatives to salvation to disciples who are making disciples. So as the uh, worship team comes up and we just prepare to, to close out this morning, three questions for you. And this is about your spiritual life. I don't care what's in your wallet or your bank account. I don't care about your, your job per se. I don't care about your positions of influence. I, these questions are about what are you doing in your relationship with Jesus Christ? What are you doing with what God has given you? When you talk about the most important thing that God has given you, it's salvation. It is the most important gift you've ever received. What are you doing with it? Are you hiding it? Or are you stewarding it well? Are you giving God teaspoons worth of life? Or are you pouring yourself out wholeheartedly in pursuit of him? And what would wholehearted pursuit look like for you? What would you give up? What would you begin? What would you confess? What would you seek his power in? Then this question, who are you trusting for your growth and the growth of those you love? Are you trying to work and make yourself grow and make those around you grow? Are you trying to just... Christ-likeness. It doesn't work like that. It's not a matter of you willing it hard enough. It's a matter of you submitting fully enough in every aspect of life and then giving God the time to work both on you and on the people you love who you want to see so desperately come up out of darkness or come up out of brokenness into the redemption available through Jesus. Who are you trusting for your growth? and the growth of those you love. And finally, Jesus' teachings will be clear for those who earnestly seek him. You want to know why you feel empty, you feel languishing, you feel, are you earnestly seeking Jesus? I mean, really. What happens so often is we say we're actually seeking him. We say we're actually pursuing him. We say we're actually sitting at his feet when all we're doing is going through the motions. And there's always... It seems that one thing we refuse to turn over, and if we did that one thing, we turned that one thing over, we, we gave it up to him. We said, this is yours, not mine. Things suddenly become clear. What are you doing? Who are you trusting? And are you earnestly seeking Jesus so that you can understand him? Take a moment and ponder these things, and then we'll close together in song. Lord Jesus, we surrender to you this morning. We seek to know you more. We seek to understand you more fully. We seek to be truly alive in you. Thank you for the light that you've given us. Thank you for the call that you've placed on us to grow, to mature, to share, to sow seed, and to participate in the harvest, to be part of a kingdom that is seemingly insignificant in some moments and yet we know is growing large and is far-reaching and ever-expanding in influence. Thank you for making us part of that. Thank you for giving us the confidence that your word is true. Thank you for you. We surrender and we grow because you will it to be. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, we've gathered as the church today. Now I 
encourage you to go out, lift high your lamp, sow seed, share in the harvest, be part of a kingdom that is subversive and just crazy in its power and reach, even though it feels small and insignificant in some moments. Go be the church. God bless.